Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in to the Stanford Center for South Asia podcast. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center. All our podcasts and information about the Center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. I am joined virtually today by Michelle Malik, who is finishing up her PhD in the Department of Political Science at Stanford, studying the politics of ethnicity in Karachi, Pakistan. Michelle, many congratulations on your recent successful defense, and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Lalata. It's great to learn more about your work. So uh, please introduce yourself to our listeners. What have you been working on? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I'm Michelle Malik. I grew up in Islamabad, Pakistan. And my research interests are sort of broadly focused on uh, what we call in the discipline, the politics of identity. So the sort of questions that I ask are, you know, how does who you are on some sort of ascriptive dimension, so to keep it simple, some dimension that you inherited and you can't change, such as your race or your ethnicity. So how does who you are on these dimensions shape how you experience the state, what your political expectations are, how you relate to people who share or do not share the same identity and so on. And in my dissertation book project, I asked these questions in Karachi, which is Pakistan's largest city and one where ethnicity is fairly important in shaping both social and political life. Um, I also have a couple of other related research interests. So I look at political violence as well as uh, migration, both internal and international. Uh, and I have projects looking at attitudes on police repression in Egypt, uh, authoritarian and populist values in the United Kingdom and attitudes towards immigrants and immigration policy in the United States as well. It sounds like you already have uh, quite a broad portfolio. I'm, I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more based on your work um, in various places, if you see any parallels between what's happening in the United States in the current moment um, uh, in terms of police attitudes towards different ethnic groups. So, so I do have a couple of projects which may be able to speak to how the current moment in the U.S. is similar to what we see in other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, but to be clear, this, this is, so my work is about opinions regarding the police amongst the public. So I don't have any original data on how police actually behave or how they think in places like Pakistan or Egypt. However, I sort of assume in my work, somewhat reasonably, I think that there's a correlation or relationship between actual police behavior and what citizens expect from the police. So I'll start with my work on Egypt, which was um, done with my co-author Scott Williamson, who specializes in Middle East politics. He's also finishing up his PhD in the same department. Um, and what we find in Egypt is that governments can frame incidents of police repression in a way that allows them to, in a way, get away with it, right? Mm. So. Imagine an incident of police violence against, you know, civilians or the, uh, you know, the opposition party or something like that. And there's two ways uh, that you can frame such an incident. So one way is government propaganda. So the government says, you know, these people were violent. The police was just defending themselves and they were defending you, the public, and, you know, uh, the protesters or the opposition was asking for it in a way. Right. Well, there's another version, which is usually reported by unbiased, non-governmental human rights organizations, which shows that the police sort of engaged in either premeditated violence or was the first to escalate things. 
So what we find in Egypt, Egypt is that, you know, if you only see the first version, the government version, which is often false, Mm -hmm. uh, you're more likely to think that the violence was justified and that there's no reason to hold the police accountable in any way. Mm -hmm. And we see the Trump administration trying to do this, right? So his all caps tweets about law and order and rioters and looters and so on are basically doing, trying to do the same thing that the Egyptian government does when it engages in police violence, which is uh, to justify police violence by painting the opposition or painting the protesters as sort of inherently violent and asking for it. So that's one thing that I've sort of found. Um, and I can talk about Karachi as well, if you'd like. Sure. Um, so in Karachi, there's a number of different findings that could be relevant to what's happening in the US now, but I'll focus on one piece of data. So. I asked respondents if, you know, two people who were equally suspected of a crime were stopped by the police, and one of them shared the ethnicity of the police officer and the other didn't. Mm. What, which subject would sort of receive preferential treatment? What were their expectations of how the police would behave? And, you know, respondents were allowed to say that neither suspect would be treated better. And so we have a lot of variation in people's responses. But over 50% of people think that the co-ethnic of the police officer would be treated better. And so in general, in Karachi, there's an expectation overall that if you share the ethnicity of the police officer, you're more likely to get more respectful treatment, more likely to get procedural justice, more likely to be treated well mm -hmm. compared to if you didn't. Now, in the United States, we have work that shows, for example, with uh, actual behavior from the Chicago police mm -hmm. that compared with white officers, black officers make substantially fewer discretionary stops, right, where they stop people for, quote, unquote, suspicious behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, they're less likely to use force. Uh, they're less likely to arrest people for small or petty crimes. And so sort of the sharing of identity between suspects and the police is also an important thing, both in the U.S. and in other parts of the world. Um, but that said, just to end, there are mixed findings on whether, you know, what we would call racial or ethnic balancing within the police uh, actually results in better outcomes for minorities. And so this is definitely an open research area where there's a lot of fights, actually, about, you know, how do we make the police more accountable towards minorities? And I think that's an argument that people make about the, the systemic nature of racism, that if, if um, a police officer is of a quote-unquote ethnic minority, it doesn't necessarily mean uh, fair or more just or more lawful behavior. But those instances are then often brought in to bolster the argument that the police actually is not racist. I agree. And I think that simply, I think this is true in Karachi as well, that simply changing the ethnicity of the police officer to maybe reflect the, uh, you know, ethnicity of the particular place that they're policing, the local area that they're policing, doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be less uh, injustices by the police, because the police also has its own culture. Correct. Right? It, it's a security service. They have very particular kinds of training. They have a very particular kind of mindset. We have some older work in the United States that shows that in order to sort of prove that you're not really a part of the minority and are part of the police, you actually behave worse towards people that you share your ethnicity or race with. Um, there was a recent uh, sort of uh, experiment in Liberia as well by a few researchers where they found the same thing, which was minority 
police officers were actually more discriminatory because mm-hmm. they wanted to prove, you know, they wanted to prove that they were a part of the police. They weren't a part of this minority. So I think the larger problem really is with the, with these institutions, how they are structured, what kind of people select into them and how they're trained. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, so let's talk a little bit more about that then, the, the politics of ethnic, ethnicity. What, what, what would you say are the political effects of identity politics and, and what, what makes an ethnic group su- successful, however you want to frame that? Um, so, you know, I can talk a little bit about what I found in Karachi. Uh, and there's a lot of nuance to the politics of ethnicity in Karachi. And there's a lot to say. Do, um, do it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but it, in keeping with our discussion of sort of state bias and police discrimination, I'll just focus on one finding. Sure. So what I find is that people who face discrimination on the basis of their identity, so whether it's from the police or the rangers, which is a paramilitary force that has a heavy presence in Karachi, uh, you know, the bureaucracy or just simply other people, they can become more attached to their identity or their ethnicity. So if you face rejection on the basis of something that you cannot change, such as your ascriptive identity, it can become a much larger part of the way that you see yourself or what you know, social psychologists call the self-concept, simply because you are unfairly targeted based on this identity. Mm-hmm. And so one way that this translates into politics is that people then demand you know, what I call the symbolic good of dignity from their political representatives. Mm -hmm. So what this means is that they want their chosen political party to stand up for the dignity or inherent worth of their ethnic group. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a very valuable and reasonable thing to demand, especially in the face of state discrimination and societal devaluation and, and disrespect. But at the same time, What I find in Karachi through many different forms of data, experimental, descriptive, qualitative, is that politicians who provide the symbolic good of dignity can then get away with providing less on other dimensions or material dimensions, such as, you know, schools or roads or health clinics. Mm. So, you know, it's sort of this perverse thing that, you know, discrimination sort of leads for this demand for dignity, but then that demand, once fulfilled, can create sort of a lack of political accountability on other very important dimensions. Right. And so I don't argue that this is always the case, but there's certainly evidence that this is the case in Karachi. Uh, And now I'm working on seeing whether this finding translates to, to other contexts. And you, I mean, it sounds quite cynical. Do you think it is like, we'll just give people what they want. And then we, you know, when they're not looking, when they feel good about having been given what they think they want, we'll just move the pieces around in other areas. I think there's a few scope conditions, which I'm still trying to work out. So one scope condition, which, uh, you know, doesn't apply to a lot of Western countries, for example, is that people should have pretty low expectations on these other dimensions. So what people would tell me in Karachi is that everybody is corrupt. So we might as well vote for the party that gives us this symbolic good of dignity, right? Which I think is a very reasonable thing to say. So it's not at all, the argument isn't that people are being irrational or that they're being distracted. And in fact, people were very open about the fact that they felt cheated by the political party. They felt that it was corrupt, but they still said they would vote for the same party because 
one, they wouldn't really expect much different from anybody else. And two, at least the party provides us with dignity. At least it provides us with shinakht or identity or recognition. Hmm. Um, and so I'm not at all trying to argue that people are being distracted or irrational, but I do think that there are certain trade-offs and consequences to valuing dignity. And, and at the end of the day, it's the fault of the state, right? So it starts with the state discrimination. Right. Um, okay, and yeah. that's where the solution is, yeah. Thank you. That that helped me um, think that through a little bit more. It, it's it sounds like we may in the United States we might be heading for something similar in in November. I just feeling uh, what people are saying about the choices that are going to be available to them. There's kind of an acceptance of uh, well, you know, we have what we have, and now we going to make the most of it. I think that's right. Um, I'm going to seg you into a, a different area. I did a podcast early on in the series with um, Aslandi Amir, and I, I asked him about this, um, the kind of binarization of representations of womanhood in South Asia. And um, I wonder if I could um, ask you about that. I, I remember as an, uh, an undergraduate in a South Asia program at the University of London, whenever we as students try to bring up these strong female role models, uh, the female leaders in South, South Asia's kind of feminist icons, I guess to push against the syllabus a little bit, uh, that, that mm -hmm. kind of take was often immediately dismantled. And, and then we were told, you know, well, yeah, these women are strong, but, you know, they derive their powers from men, fathers, husbands. Right. Um, and so, I mean, looking back on that now, and it, it's actually, I mean, I've been looking back on it for a long time, and it's all crystallizing very much in this current moment. We were literally trained to see ourselves as white saviors in that we could only mm -hmm. see South Asian women as trapped by the patriarchy. You know, they're literate and educated. That was the kind of narrative. And as, as, as a teacher, I struggle with that because, yes, these things can, of course, be true, but they're also not true at all and so trying to convey that that uh, i'm not sure if the word is i mean a nuanced version of of the very complex reality i think i struggle with that um as a woman having grown up in pakistan how how do you see that you know i don't think you, i think i struggle with this too as someone who has grown up in pakistan so mm. you know when you come across this western conception of uh, you know, the helpless South Asian woman, pardon me, is very defensive immediately. Of course. Right, because, because you know, it is absolutely the case that the Western view of South Asian women and, and women in Muslim countries in general uh, is sort of intricately tied up with the colonial and what some people would call neo-colonial projects, such mm -hmm. as the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. So the general idea here is that, you know, as a justification for colonization, invasion, war, um, Western states have pointed to how women in the global south require saving from the evil patriarchal system that they live under. Correct. So to me, this is a very silly justification for waging war, right? Because the same women that are supposedly going to be saved um, also suffer the horrors and the injustices of these wars. Uh, including violence and the loss of their families and wartime rape and so on. Um, so yeah, I think there's definitely that pushback. I think from from people on you know we're you know we're not like this or you can't use uh, the things that have happened to us in order to uh, maybe um, 
you know, push your own agenda as, as several governments have. But that said, I think it's also absolutely the case that South Asian women live in a highly unequal, oppressive, patriarchal society. Hmm. Um, now, I don't mean to say that there's no variation across South Asia in the lived experiences of women. So in Pakistan, for example, the culture and rules governing women's lives is very different across provinces. Right. Um, it's also different in cities versus rural areas. Um, and even within cities, it's very different based on factors like social class. And I think that's true in most places, right? Like I think women have different experiences within countries as well and within the West. Right. Um, yes. Yeah. So, you know, honor killings, which are a very real problem in Pakistan, are still not a problem for many women in Pakistan, including myself. It's not really something that I've ever had to worry about. Right. So we have to keep these intricacies and nuances in mind. However, overall, there are some problems that affect basically all women in places like Pakistan and in, in, in other places in South Asia. So take access to public space, which we take for granted in the West. Right? Like it's such a basic sort of, in my opinion, a basic human right. Um, I can, without thinking twice, go out and lie in the grass outside. I can read a book. I can go for a run. Not that I run. Um, <laughs> you could. <laughs> I could if I wanted to. Uh, I could go for a bike ride. I could sit in an outdoor cafe. I could go to the mosque. You know, all these things that I can do here. Uh, this is just some, simply not the case in Pakistan and other places in South Asia. So the norm is that public spaces belong to men. Absolutely. And when women inhabit public spaces, they open themselves up to harassment and at the least to constant staring. So constant sort of, you're being watched all the time. Yep. And I don't know a single woman in Pakistan who has not experienced this or complained about this issue, regardless of where they live and what class they belong to. Mm. Um, so I really do think that that's something we need to take seriously as a society and that those of us who are aware of the way you know western conceptions of women in muslim areas or in south asia have been used for oppressive projects we should still be paying attention to this sort of indigenous oppression of women as well hmm. um finally i i do also want to add that these rigid gender roles are detrimental not only to women but also to men correct so, you know, just like women are expected to do certain things and demands are placed on them because of their gender, and men also face like inflexibility at the societal level. So, you know, they're supposed to be the breadwinner if they are uh, worthy of marriage or even worthy of respect. So if they don't do that, they're literally not worthy of respect. Mm. Uh, you know, they are supposed to take care of their parents, for example, and so on. Right. And so the brunt of these binaries is still faced by women, but I think it's worth acknowledging that gender roles in, in general are quite oppressive towards both women and men. I think that's something that we are, we are, that's become more of a discussion point that the patriarchy really oppresses everyone. It does. Uh, in, in so many different ways. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, everything you say about your experience in, in Pakistan, mirrors my experience in in India and um, the time I've spent there 
when I was younger, I used to think, well, it's going to get easier when I get older. And it hasn't really, I mean, I think I've become mm-hmm. more relaxed about it. Um, but it does feel that things are shifting a, a little bit. Is it, is it getting, is it getting easier? Or are we just getting more used to it? Or are there real um, examples of progress? I think that there are real examples of progress. Um, in many ways, Pakistan is different from the country that I grew up in. So in some good ways and some bad ways. So in good ways, uh, I don't remember anything like the Audit March or the Women's March mm-hmm. um, happening in Pakistan while I was growing up. Um, and while the march received a lot of pushback from the media and especially from religious groups, it also enjoyed a lot of support. Uh, and so many people came out to participate. I mean, I was supposed to be there, but I had to cancel my trip due to COVID. Right. And I was very sorry not to be there, but my yeah. presence was not missed. There were so many people. Uh, and so I think women's rights are now very squarely a part of the national debate because of things like the audit march. Um, and before the march, we also had small movements called, you know, there's one called Girls at Dhabas. I don't know if you've heard of this, but Dhabas are... are small, informal outdoor cafes. Best food in South Asia. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Where traditionally you only see men. Absolutely. Um, uh, And the point of Girls at Thabas was for women to start reclaiming public spaces, even in the face of opposition and severe discomfort. So the idea was if you go to a Dhaba, you like sort of put up a photo with Girls at Dhabas and stuff, just to sort of normalize it a little bit. Mm. So I think we're slowly getting there. I think we have a long way to go, but I think we're slowly getting there. Well, that's, Um, that's, yeah, go, sorry, go ahead. No, just just to finish another thing, you know, since you asked if there's been any progress, another thing that I've seen personally change since my childhood are the standards by which women are judged worthy or beautiful. Mm. So, um, you know, like a lot of former colonies, many Pakistanis are obsessed with fair skin, with whiteness. Fair and Lovely Queens, which I used as a young child, which should tell you, you know, uh, how much it affects people. Wow. Uh, but, I, but I think the standard of beauty is gradually changing. So as a dark-skinned girl, I, I feel pretty positively about that. Well, that's, there's so much to impact, unpack in everything you say. We don't have time for that. But I, I, I mean, I, um, I agree that there definitely is real progress. Uh, and I think also for um, queer awareness, that's definitely changing in India. I mean, it's, it zigzags a bit because of the political situation, but I think on the whole, we, we can definitely see a kind of an upward moving graph towards um, more liberal attitudes, um, slowly, slowly but surely. Um, you, you mentioned just now uh, this idea of colorism as a tool of, oppression for women, for men too, I think, Um, but perhaps more so for women uh, through this kind of worship of uh, fair skin. I I recently watched Hassan Minaj um, speaking to that in in his episode of Patriot Patriot Act after the death of George Floyd. And I feel he kind of conflated colorism and racism in the Desi community. And I think I felt that it's a little bit more complicated than that, but they are related do you think now or recently or in this moment people are becoming more aware of the political implications of their adoration of fair skin yeah i mean i agree with you that it's definitely more complicated than that but that they're also related 
I feel like at least amongst the diaspora, what I've seen is, uh, you know, the current moment uh, in, in the United States has prompted a debate within the Desi community about their worship of white skin. Um, in Pakistan, I don't know if people are thinking about the political implications. Mm. I, I might be wrong about this, but I do think that there's more awareness about the societal or social implications of this obsession with fair skin. Mm. So in some circles, it's becoming less acceptable to openly talk about how darker skins are less attractive. Um, that said, we still have a long way to go. So I'll give you an example. So my best friend from Pakistan is herself very fair skinned. Mm -hmm. uh, but she married a darker skinned man and her son, who was less than a year old, inherited more of his father's skin tone. Mm -hmm. So she lives in the UK now, but recently she returned to Pakistan for a trip back home with her son. Um, and already, this is, a, this is a baby that's not even a toddler. Several people commented on his skin color as one of the first things they said about mm -hmm. him. And, you know, they were like, we hope he gets better that is less dark with age right that i mean she was furious obviously oh. but this was also the experience i had growing up uh, from yeah. a very very young age yeah uh, which is why i turned to fairness creams at the age of what 11 11 or something uh, so i think we still have a long way to go on the issue of colorism but i think the the diaspora the south asian diaspora especially younger people uh, are paying much more attention to this uh, now in the aftermath of what happened with George Floyd and what's going on in the US. I'm sorry, I, I, I giggled when you said that. I mean, it's just so recognizable and, and so awful. It wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't no, an no, enjoyment no. laugh. It was more like a shake my head. <laughs> no, that's totally fine. I mean, I, have a, I, I think especially South Asians understand the relationship between humor as, as sort of a coping mechanism. Right. <laughs> I think it was Nietzsche who said uh, a joke is an epitaph of an emotion. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I absolutely do not take that as a, I, I'm not offended by your Okay, well, I just wanted to clarify that because it's, uh, <laughs> it's sad. And I'm sorry that, I mean, of course, I know because of spending my time in India that uh, that beauty standard is there for babies. Uh, for, it's there from the get-go. Uh, but I'm, I wasn't aware that children are already using that, that cream um to um yeah. to help quote unquote help uh yeah well hopefully that will change uh it's so good talking to you i've learned so much from you in the past 25 26 minutes that we've been talking would you be willing to share a little bit about uh, what's next for you uh i am going to be starting a position at harvard um so next year i'll be a postdoctoral fellow and the year after, I'll be an assistant professor of government at Harvard University. So um, I, I will keep doing political science for as long as I can be. That's fantastic news. Many congratulations. Are you, do you have a particular project in mind or are you going to be working on your, on your um, PhD project and then taking it from there? I mean, I'll be doing the same thing that I did in the PhD, which is work on a, a number of different projects all over the world. But my main focus over the next couple of years will be writing a book about Karachi based right. on my, my dissertation. So that is the hope. Well, hopefully you'll be able to make your way back there um, before too long. Um, you already I have to <laughs> the, the Women's March. Are things opening up there? What's, it's, it, because Pakistan itself seems to be moving towards being open, but maybe there are no 
flights? They're not allowing flights in. Right. They're not allowing flights in. So, yeah. All right. And well, also things are getting pretty bad on the COVID front in Pakistan at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think we're watching everywhere as the rules relax to see what happens next. Um, I hope that you will be able to um, go to Karachi when it is Thank safe you. to do so. I hope all your people in Pakistan will be safe and well as much Thank as you. possible uh, with this virus going on. Uh, and I wish you all the best with everything that's ahead of you. Many congratulations and thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Lalit. It was lovely talking to you. To our audience, thank you for being here. Uh, and please, we will continue the podcast series through summer because we're just having so much fun with it and we're getting very good feedback. Uh, please log on to our website, southasia.stanford.edu and find out all about the podcast series. And then you can uh, leave comments on the SoundCloud or on Twitter uh, and let us know how we're doing. Or you can also just email us uh, all the information's on the website. Thank you and talk to you again soon.